Well, we are in Joel chapter 3, and Lord willing, we're going to get through this last portion of Scripture. So next week, we'll be in 2 Corinthians. We're going to pick back up where we left off with 1 Corinthians, see how they adjusted. But before we open up in a word of prayer and go into Joel chapter 3, let's look at a little review and a little introduction. You know, three weeks ago, we talked about the pride of life and just this coming to God and demanding that He do things a certain way. We talked about the famine in the land. And then two weeks ago, we talked about the day of the Lord, this future judgment of of the world. Last week, we talked about repentance and restoration. And this week, we're going to look at rebellion, the rebellion of the world against God and the future hope and restoration of the nation of Israel. As a way of introduction, when we look here and we look at this time that's going to be this, this rebellion to God, I'm thinking that, wow, you know, this is not quite the subject that you would think around the Christmas season where we're looking at little baby Jesus and his sacrifice and his suffering and humbling himself and turning the other cheek and going the extra mile and being a servant. And we don't always contrast that correctly with the all-powerful, all-knowing God who is going to judge the world, that every knee is going to bow before him. And it's unfortunate if you are growing in your faith and you're not having this proper balance between the two. And I also find it fascinating that in this time of Joel, remember it's around 800 BC, that the tribe, the Judah, the nation of Israel, they're in this huge famine. They have, they have no food. There's no more grass for the, for the cattle, for the sheep. There's no more fruit of the vine. There's no more fruit on the trees. I'm, I'm thinking that's not exactly the time that you want to talk about end times. You know, don't you want to health, wealth, prosperity, gospel at that time? Everything's going to be great. But we're going to be seeing as we go through this chapter and we talk about the rebellion of man, about the battle of Armageddon, how these things all tie together and how the Lord uses them all to reveal to us who he truly is and encourages us for our famines and for our difficulties. So let's go before the Lord in prayer and then we're going to jump into verses 1 through 8. Father, we pray that you would help us navigate your word, navigate it correctly. We pray that you would teach us more about yourself this morning, about the future and our hopes. And Lord, we also pray that you would reveal to us, more importantly, more about yourself, and that we would be able to share it to the whole world. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read verses 1 through 8 together. For behold, in those days and at that time, When I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into the judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people and have given a boy as payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the coast of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me, swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head. Because you have taken my silver and my gold, and have carried into your temples my prized possessions. Also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks, that you may remove them far from their borders. Behold, I will raise them out of a place to which you have sold them, 
and will return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken. That doesn't sound like the little baby Jesus that I know. I will return to your retaliation upon your own head. Well, what is he talking about here? And again, he is all these things. He is the humble servant who came, the son of man, not to be served, but to serve. He is teaching us the truth to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile. But we must also know that God is just and he is righteous and he is going to judge the world. And we are going to see here that Joel, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's writing these future prophecies. He's going to tell them the future in advance. And we're going to see how these devastating things can actually be a hope. Sadly, though, as he says, for behold, in those days and at that time, in verse 1, he's speaking about future events to the nation of Israel. Remember, this is written in about 800 B.C., but in 722 B.C., 100 years later, Israel's become the northern tribe, a Assyrian province. In Israel, the northern tribes are going to be taken into captivity, and they will not return. Judah, the southern portion where he's prophesying, they're going to become a province of Babylon and Persia in 586 and 539. All the nation of Israel are going to be taken captive and removed from the land. And it's going to be God's judgment on them. And you could say to yourself, you know, why would God judge his own people and then allow all the wicked countries of this world, all the nations of this earth to prosper? Well, he's going to answer that here. And we're going to see the promises of God through these trials and tribulations. First, if we look at Romans chapter 11, which is written in about 50, 60 A.D., 800 years later, we see that God is going to supernaturally preserve the nation of Israel. And we'll talk about why that matters and, and how weird that is if you're looking at it from Joel's shoes. But in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, it says, And so Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Roll this back to Joel's day, 800 B.C. He's telling the nation of Israel, oh, you think this is bad? All, we're all going to be taken over. We're all going to be taken captive. Foreign armies are going to come and destroy us. They're going to take the gold from the temple, and they're going to bring it into their own temples. But then God is going to bring us back into the land. He's going to restore us. He says he'll gather the valley, uh, all the nations in this future judgment. But he says before that, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, he's going to bring them back into the land. And then we know 800 years later, Paul, the apostle, is writing there that in the future, the nation of Israel not only is going to exist, but God's going to preserve them. When it says here in verse 1, Behold, in those days and at that time, he's speaking about the tribulation period. And we know from the book of Revelation that the nation of Israel will have 144,000 people supernaturally preserved through the greatest holocaust this world has ever seen. And God's still never going to leave nor forsake his people. Now, this is so important to us because I think to myself, what, if I'm in a famine and I don't know how to feed my kids, I don't want to hear about a future judgment or trials. Why, why is God putting that in there? And then we're seeing 
that no matter what difficulty we're going through, what, no matter what trial, God has a purpose and a plan for us. And if he says that we're going to be preserved, we're going to be preserved. And that which we think is important isn't quite really that important. And when we put things in context to who God truly is, his omnipotence, his power, his omniscience, his, all, his all-knowing, ever-present, omnipotent, let me rephrase that right. Let's do that right. Omnipotent means all-powerful God. Omniscient means all-knowing, ever-present. He is all those things. Because we can believe sometimes the enemy comes and he puts lies in us that he can be weak. We think, oh, well, why is God allowing this? Why is God allowing the nations to turn away from him? The answer we will see is he won't for much longer. You see, when it talks about the valley of Jehoshaphat here in verse 2, there is no such thing as the valley of Jehoshaphat. There's no place called this. So why is it listed that way? The word Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, means the valley of God's judgment is what it means. We know from the scripture that this is going to be the valley of Megiddo, which is a literal place in Israel, otherwise known as the battle of Armageddon. Joel is prophesying in 800 B.C., 2,800 years before it happens, that there's going to be a catastrophic battle in the valley of Megiddo where the world is going to gather together and literally, not spiritually, literally try and fight God. Where does it say that? Well, in Revelation chapter 16, verse 12, it says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to battle, to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Now, if this is your first time in church and you're hearing about demon people with frogs coming out of their mouths and you're like, what in the world is going on here? Well, there's a lot of people that think that you can't even understand the book of Revelation. In fact, they say, don't even bother. And yet the book of Revelation tells us there's a special blessing for all who read it. The issue is you're missing the key. To understand the symbolism in the book of Revelation, it's clearly written in the Old Testament. See, here in Joel chapter 3, it's being unlocked for us, this battle of Armageddon. That what's going to happen during the tribulation, and we won't be here, is that demonically inspired entities are going to go out and gather the world and they're going to think they can fight God and they're going to gather together in Megiddo and they're going to be in a literal battle. We'll see how that works here in a little bit. But the reminder to us is this as Christians in the 21st century. We may mistakenly think that Christ is weak. You see, in the end times there in the battle of Armageddon, the world's economies, the world's military might, its philosophy, everything that it has, it's going to gather together to fight against God and his people in a battle, and they, they are going to lose. And see, for us, we sometimes think, well, is the Lord weak? 
in that he's allowing these nations to blaspheme his name? Are we not seeing entities against the Lord today, anti-Christian philosophy, anti-Christian teachings, to where we're being called bigots and racist and backwards and ignorant? We're being called all these different things. And you may think to yourself, like, well, maybe they're right. You know, maybe I should just be quiet. Maybe I should just go to church and be quiet. Maybe we should just close the churches. Like, you know, is this even working? And we need to be reminded, just like they are in the book of Joel, when they had a famine, where their economies crashed, their work is gone, their banks are closed. They have no way forward to remember God is in control. He's all-powerful, and he is going to set all things right. You know, Jesus reminds us of this. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells us he is going to judge all the nations. Every single person, he will judge them. In Matthew 25, verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as his shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Jesus is in control of everything. He is all-powerful. There's nothing being snuck by him. We need to be reminded of this, because especially in days like today, when Christ is not being magnified, he's not being glorified, he's being blasphemed, he's, people are coming against him, they're mocking him, they're laughing at him, and they're saying, you know, he's just a figment of our imagination, or he's just a good story, or he was just a good teacher, or he doesn't exist at all. And man is putting himself in the position of God to say, well, if God's real, he owes us. Until we're reminded who he really is. Here in Joel chapter 3, he says that if you go after God's people, he is coming after you. Now, that's not our job as Christians. But when, when the Lord tells us in the New Testament that judgment is mine, says the Lord, that's not figurative. That is literal. And he is going to return their retaliation upon their own head. And so when we compare Jesus in his first coming to this planet to his second, we get a glimpse of who God is in general. Now, to me, the judgment of God is the most logical portion of this whole thing. And, and David Guzik says the same thing. He says, Judgment is about the only aspect of God's plan of the ages that is plainly logical. The grace and mercy of God are not plainly logical. Salvation by grace through faith is not plainly logical. The high standing and destiny of the believer in Jesus are not plainly logical. Judgment, God simply giving those who reject him what they deserve, is plainly logical. It is as if God says to the wicked, you rejected the mercy and grace of heaven, so I will give you the plain logic of earth. You will receive what you deserve before the holy court of my justice. You know, it, it seems that this study of the rise of Nazism in Germany in the 1930s is becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, many uh, liberals in our 
government today or in our world today are trying to make applications to say that America is in the same place. As a historian, I can tell you that's not even close to the truth. But it does lead us to begin to question some things, though. Why would God allow his people to go through the Holocaust? And it's not just the Holocaust, the pogroms of Russia, the Inquisition of Spain, the anti-Semitism of Europe. Century after century after century, Satan has been trying to destroy the people of God. And the answer is, I don't know. But I do know this. It is a greater miracle that all of the machinations, plans, and evil of man cannot destroy those people. I I find it horrifying that it even happened, but I find it incredible that God's people survived, the nation of Israel, to this day. And we know that we are children of Abraham through faith, but I, I see all of the hopelessness, the sorrow, the depression. And you see those things and you say, God, how is it that even with Islamic terrorists and nations, all the nations that surround that country that want to wipe them off the face of the earth. Now they say that literally they're marching in Tehran, they're marching in the Middle East, death to Israel, death to Israel. Why? And yet they're still around. The mercy of God. But I will say this. When we understand the full counsel of God's worth, he says he's going to return the retaliation. Many people, when they have this discussion about the Holocaust, forget that Germany was almost wiped off the face of the earth. Millions upon millions upon millions of Germans, civilians and soldiers alike, were killed in World War II. They didn't get off scot-free. But that is nothing compared to the future tribulation where there will be the greatest holocaust that the world has ever seen and yet the Lord is still going to supernaturally preserve them. And in that midst, God is going to judge this planet and say that is enough. When we talk about the Valley of Megiddo and the Battle of Armageddon, we're going to see that here shortly. But I still wonder... You know, Joel, is this really the time to be talking about the battle of Armageddon? I mean, they they can't feed their kids. Lord, they don't don't know what's next. They don't know how they're going to make ends meet. And you want to talk about the future? But then you begin to see, of course, the balance of God's justice and his mercy. Because Israel was under judgment. We know that from Leviticus. They had not followed the Lord. They went after idolatry. They went in a different direction. And God allowed this destruction to come upon them. But he was also going to preserve them and see them through. And we go through difficult times. And we know that God is just, but he's also merciful. His mercies are new every day. And he will lead us and protect us. We also see God's wrath and his strength. You know, it's one thing to suffer for the Lord, but it's like, man, are we just going to suffer? Is that our lot in life? Just to suffer and to hurt and be persecuted as Christians? No. No, but his mercy, he allows us to go through those things so that the world may be saved. Remember, Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world from the wrath of God that we all deserve. And in this age, this age of grace, All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. As dark and as difficult as these portions of text are, 
The Lord doesn't want us to go through them. He's willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's given us a life preserver, and man says, no, I want this life preserver. I want to be glorified. I want to be magnified. I want to be healthy, wealthy. You owe me this, God, or you're not a good God. And then we remember, he's the one sitting on the throne. Let's see that in verses 9 through 17 together. It says, proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go, come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord will also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. Now, there's a couple of verses here that are taken out of context. Uh, one of them says, let the weak say, I am strong. And you may have sung that in a worship song. There's the three C's. They're so important. Context, context, context. What they're saying here is God's telling the enemies of the world, yeah, go get your soldiers. Come meet me in the Valley of Megiddo. We got work to do. We got a battle to fight. That's not a good context for that song. It means rebellion against God. Now, I'm not saying throw the song out. Just chuckle when you hear it like I do and just keep on reading. What's another one? A lot of um, <clears throat> revivalists will use this. We're in the valley of decision. It's time to make a decision. The valley of decision is the battle of Armageddon, another place you don't want to be. Again, just chuckle when you hear it. We're going to remember the context of these things in Joel chapter 3. But another one, you may be like, I, I didn't hear that right. I, there's no way I heard that right. It said, put your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. I thought it was the other way around. You know, in the front of the United Nations, there's a, um, a monument, kind of like an arch, and you can look it up. And the text you're thinking of is written there. It's Isaiah 2.4. Isaiah 2.4, it's also in Micah 4.3. It says, he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. You're like, well, wait a minute, which one is it? Again, context. So God is telling the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God himself, hey, get all the weapons you can possibly muster. Come on down if you think you're so tough. And then he's going to fight them. But the context in Isaiah is of the millennial kingdom. When God rules and reigns, he's going to rule with a rod of iron. There will be no more war, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more disease. He's going to remove it all. 
And so all of our efforts that we've had for making war will be no longer needed. And we'll be working on plowing, on fields, on growing. I I find it interesting what uh, J. Vernon McGee said. He said, if we really wanted peace, we should stick to Joel 3 and not Isaiah 4. You know, getting rid of the weapons doesn't bring peace until the Lord comes. You know, we need to have strong militaries as a deterrence, not for war, he would say. Again, context. No one can stand against God. This is important for us as 21st century Christians to be reminded that God is in control. He will have victory. In fact, the Bible tells us in Psalm 2 that all the plans of man, he laughs at them. Now, I got a strong word. I'm going to share with some of our brothers and sisters. You know, if you're upset, the complaint department is in the trash can over there by the sound booth. But there's brothers and sisters that are really into prophecy. And they'll look at the United Nations and say, oh, that's, you know, the Antichrist is going to use them. The, the United Nations is next to worthless. You know, aside from the United States doing, and I don't know the exact number, three quarters of its budget. I mean, they appoint Iran and North Korea to the, the Council of Human Rights, and you think the Antichrist is going to use them to war? Or the, the uh, European Union or the Illuminati or that somehow people and their plans are in conjunction to bring the world's population down to 200,000 people or 2 million or 20 million or whatever they say? Or that their secret plans to seed the weather and they're using weather experiments? Listen. None of those things are real. There is a demonic entity named Satan who is using man's flesh against him to bring in these things. But nobody wants to listen to Christians because they're saying such silly things. The United Nations doesn't have any strength. And I can tell you that nobody can keep a secret anymore. All of these people just want to be as rich as they possibly can. That's their end goal. I used to work for the Air Force, and don't think that it's anything uh, super fancy. We uh, had to work on a flight line, in, in, um, an airport, and we had to get all the fob off of it. That's a fancy word for get all of the rocks and fill all the, cla- the uh, cracks in there, make it perfectly flat, because there was a top-secret project, this top-secret project that today they're telling everybody about how fast it goes and how high it was and how long it was in sp- space. It's called the X-Plane. And we had to be on standby. Nobody was told what to do. We had to sign these disclosures that if we told anybody anything about it, we would be arrested and put in jail. And it was top secret. And nobody could know when it was going to land, but we knew it was coming close because they put some of the guys on standby because they had to be by the flight line when the thing landed. Now, my little podunk town had a little paper called the Lompoc Record and sure enough, as the thing landed on the front cover, there's a picture of it landing in the middle of the night. How is that possible? Somebody told them. And all that's to say is that people can't keep these secrets anymore. You, they just don't do it. And the enemy has Christians distracted because they're worried about the plans of man. Men are selfish, ambitious, and they just want to be powerful and rich. They, they can't even get together in the same room and come up with a good idea. I mean, we just found out yesterday that the CEO of Disney got um, kicked out by another person on the board, the CFO. Because people are always undermining each other. 
And here we are trying to tell non-believers to trust the Bible about the future. And this is the way you're going to prove it? By talking about men in tinfoil hats? That the United Nations is going to somehow rule the planet? The European Union? They can't even, have, they can't even decide together how much money to give to the Ukraine. They can't even decide who's going to be in NATO. We need to be looking for the glorious return of the Lord. We need to prepare and understand that God is in control. God is not weak. And nothing is happening that he's not allowing. When I mentioned Psalm 2 earlier, we're going to read it together. What does the Lord think about all these preparations of man and all these so-called secret committees and councils? It says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, one of my favorites. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. All the strength of this planet, all its intellect, all of its economies, all of its militaries are being whipped up into an anti-Christian frenzy. We're seeing it today. Where the media constantly in your face on every single screen is trying to tell us that Christians are bigoted, ignorant, that we're backwards, that we're racist, that we're hypocrites. There's nothing new under the sun. It's going to be times a, a thousand in the future when they're literally going to gather together to fight God in the Valley of Megiddo. And the Lord just sits there and laughs. Why? Because he is sitting on the throne. Now, it's some dark, dark language here. But it says in verse 12, as he's gathering them in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, in verse 13, it says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. He's not talking about making wine. He's not talking about crushing grapes. He's talking about people. That in the Valley of Megiddo, we're going to see a battle that is so terrible that, as it says in Revelation 14, it's going to go up to the horse's bridle, the blood. It's in Revelation 14, 17 through 20. It says, Then another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And the other angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. Now, I'll, I'll remind you who does this. It's the Lord Jesus himself who comes back on a white horse. And the words coming out of his mouth are like a double-edged sword. And he cuts down his enemies so um, utterly destroyed that the blood goes up to the horse's bridle. That, you know, sweet little baby Jesus that we're singing about does that. We have to be reminded that he is not weak. And when he turned to Pontius Pilate and he said, you have no power 
which my Father in heaven has not given you. Don't you know I have the power to call down legions of angels? He doesn't even need the, the legions of angels. He's going to wipe out all of the armies of this world in one battle. And we're going to follow him. He has the ability to lead us, direct us, to stand against this world, to stand for truth. And he taught us how to do it with meekness, not weakness. He turned the other cheek. He allowed the world to bruise him. He allowed to be himself to be scourged, to have the crown of thorns, to sit on the cross, to stay there nailed to it. He held the cross there, not he was held to the cross. And we can learn to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile. Because when the Bible says that judgment is mine, saith the Lord, he is serious. He's telling us that we are not the ones to judge. We are not the ones to condemn because he will defend us. And that is a fearful thing. No, sometimes it can creep into our minds that the Lord just doesn't want to do this. He's, just, he's weak, that he doesn't want to step in. You know, that, you know, we're just supposed to be nice and hold hands and sing kumbaya. We have to remind ourselves that he sits on the throne. He is God. And if the whole world were against us and there was only one Christian left, that Christian would be on the side of victory for all eternity. Now, in the midst of this, you may be thinking, well, what's the positive here? This is terrifying. Well, what did it say about the nation of Israel there? At the end of verse 16, it says, but, but the Lord will shelter, will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. You know, in the tribulation period, the seven-year tribulation, God is going to supernaturally preserve 144,000 Jews. It's the greatest Holocaust Armageddon ever. No judgment like it on the face of the earth, and yet God is going to preserve his people. The same ones that the world and mankind and Satan have been trying to wipe out, God is going to preserve them all the way to the end of the age. So when he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, do you think he can do it? Oh, yes. When he says, then no one can pluck you out of the hand of the Father, he can, oh, he's powerful. He can do it. He is not weak. He is not slack. And now when we see these these texts and these verses here, we realize that we have the key to understanding the book of Revelation, and it's very clearly written out. There's no secret knowledge anymore. There's no secret thing that God hasn't revealed for the last 5,000 years or the last 900 years where we have a new secret doctrine that we're going to peel out of the pages of Scripture. No, it's plainly written, and that's why the book of Revelation says there's a blessing for those who read it. The problem is that we keep adding all this other nonsense to it. And yet in the time of great judgment, we see that the Lord is able to preserve. Well, we're in a time of famine, just like in 800 B.C., but it's not a famine of wheat or grain or figs or fruit. It's not a famine. It's not even economic problems. It's spiritual I had a brother remind me in Amos 8.11. I'm going to turn there because it's just one book to your right. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, 
but of hearing the words of the Lord. The enemy has us so distracted watching every screen, every talking head, every professor with every just morbid, disgusted, twisted philosophy. All these things in contrast to the Bible, and yet we have the very words of life. We have the words of God, the mind of Christ here on the scriptures. Do we spend time in them? No, we're in a famine. Imagine dying of dehydration when the water's right there to drink. Spiritually, that's what we're seeing. And so we need to grow in the scriptures and we need to learn, learn it to seek after the Lord. And we're going to see something beautiful here now in verses 18 through 21, a promise to Israel that we can apply to ourselves. It says, And it came to pass, and it will come to pass in that day, that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow with the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacias. Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness because of the violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in their land, but Judah shall abide forever. And Jerusalem from generation to generation, for I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed, whom I have not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion." Imagine that to, to Joel's audience there. After all this, you know, talking about that this is a punishment from God, that they have to turn back to God, they need to repent and be restored. And then this future trial and tribulation, this, this history in advance of Israel that's so difficult. And yet he's going to say, but God's going to preserve them. He's going to shelter our people. And then what does it say? They're so beautiful. It says, the mountains shall drip with new wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing it even today, but we know that there's another future hope in Zechariah 14.8. It talks about how Jerusalem is going to be restored and water is going to flow out of Jerusalem. Some Bible scholars even think that that water is going to flow out and the Dead Sea is going to come back to life again. I happen to agree with them. In Zechariah 14.8, it says, it, And in that day it shall be the living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. I imagine that from an irrigation point. Remember, these are agrarian people. They can't just turn on the water tap. They're praying that the Lord's going to bring the rain every single year, and he does. And now they're being told that water is just going to come straight out of the ground when the Lord, when the Messiah returns and sets up Jerusalem. The application for us is that Jesus said that he is the water of life. He is the fountain where that water comes from. And yes, literally in the millennial kingdom, living water is going to flow out from Jerusalem, but so is spiritual. He said, taste of me and drink and you will never thirst again. He is that water of life. It flows from him. All we have to do is drink from him and take it. That is the word of God, growing in the word of God. In, in a world and a society that is telling us more and more that this ancient text is just a bunch of myth, that this book is just a bunch of old philosophies and backward thinking, we see that this is the living word of God. It prophesies the future. It gives history in advance. 
And we can look back on it and see, wow, the nation of Israel was taken captive. Judah was taken captive. They were brought back into the land. And all these things that were promised, they did happen. And there's going to be future things for us that are coming, and we can trust it. We just have to stick to him, to the plan, and realize that all of the enemy's plans against us, the Lord is laughing at them in Psalm 2. They don't mean anything to him. He is on the throne, and we will rule and reign with him. What a beautiful promise to Joel's people there in the nation of Israel that are going through such a terrible time to realize that in the end, God is in control, and it's all going to work out. Trust him and live. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, and I pray that it continues to speak to us just as it has for so many millennium, Lord. We thank you that it's alive and living and sharper than any two-edged sword, and I pray that you would bring it to our minds, put it in our hearts, that we could share this glorious gospel to the world, that you didn't come to condemn the world, Lord, but to save that we need to go out there and share this message that people need to be spared from this judgment and that those that plan to quote-unquote talk to you when they get up to the kingdom have no idea what they're saying, Lord, and the devastation that that is. We pray that people would repent, turn to the gospel, and be saved. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We're so thankful and we hold hold in such high esteem your power of who you truly are. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, come on up. We'd love to share with you, pray with you. Um, There'll be brothers and sisters up here available for you to pray with. God bless you and have a wonderful week.